When I look in the mirror, I don't see wrinkles. When I look in the mirror, I see hair on my head, not my shoulder. And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the fountain of truth. The fountain of truth about aging. Well, I just came back from four grueling, may I say, days, exhilarating, adrenaline-rushing days, scary days of a conference, our very first virtual conference. And boy, oh boy, it went wonderfully. We had Congresswoman Shalala. We had Congressman Raskin. We had surprises, people dropping by. But the big surprise was you. We had 987 attendees, 987 attendees, many from London, from Singapore, all over the United States, 79 speakers, and it was all about longevity. Now, you've heard of counter-programming. I think you have. You know that when you have perhaps, let's say, a light show, another channel has something deep in documentary so that they capture the audience that doesn't like fluff. Well, if we've been doing longevity, had to live longer for four days, I thought maybe good counter-programming might be how to die well. We've been dealing with how to live well, and now we're going to take another look at this from a whole different direction with jo- with oncologist, hospice uh, physician, Dr. Jeff Spies, uh, the author of a new book that is so popular, and I have to give credit to America for rushing to buy this book, uh, and that it's on back order, but you can get it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Dying with Ease is the name of the book. A compassionate, a compassionate guide for um, making wiser end of life decisions. Now, do not think that this is a show about legal documents. Don't confuse it. I know you all know that I was an elder law attorney for 35 years. This is way, way beyond that. So, thank you, Dr. Spees, for being with us today. And uh, I, I, where are you calling from, actually? Where are you on from? I'm, I'm uh, just outside of Cleveland on the wonderful North Coast. Oh, very, very beautiful. I'll be making a COVID-friendly trip across America in November, and we oh. will be there. So that's that's great. Check For the out. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, so worth, it's let's worth a start. Stop. It is. It is indeed. So let's start with this. Uh, I told you a lot of questions I was going to ask you, but here's a question that you didn't know I was going to ask you. Are you ready? I'm good. Oncologist, hospice physician, book on death and dying. Why? Let's go to the oncology hospice side. What so, was it that draw that draws you to this? So what what got me into oncology? Well, when I went when I went through training, this was in the mid eighties. Oncology was a brand new specialty, and it was paired with hematology, uh, blood disorders. And what got me into the field was laboratory hematology, the fun diagnostics of, of um, fascinating laboratory hematology. What kept me in the field was cancer patients, people who I met often in desperate situations. I tended to see weekly uh, or very frequently if they were on treatment and they're in the office, and I have to find something to talk to them about, except their scans and their white blood count. So what worked for me was to get to know them as individuals and as people. 
I saw part of my job since in the mid 80s, most people who got advanced cancers died from it. Um, and often very quickly, I saw taking care of these patients through the end of their lives as part of the job. So I started volunteering with a local small hospice organization as a, as a part-time medical director. I learned the marvelous things that hospice is able to do. I learned the value of presence when I uh, visited people in their homes. Um, I learned uh, some of the techniques of, of, of how to relieve symptoms, but mainly I learned how much one learns from the dying because they've got nothing to lose. They can be yeah. honest with you. You can have wonderful conversations and they tell you amazing things about life. I was able to then gradually transition my career. I was fortunate enough to be able to do that. I took a step back into the academic world and spent uh, five years at the University of Iowa uh, as an oncologist to make my salary and as director of the pal palliative care program uh, to uh, fulfill my passion. And uh, But then I realized that academics and I were probably not the best partners and was able to transition into a, a superb hospice agency here in Cleveland and um, uh, spent uh, 15 years there before retiring. You know, many years ago I was in Daytona and there was a, what was at that time, the largest hospice uh, in the United States. It had 900 beds, but it was a separate place. It was a separate bricks and mortar building. Today, hospice can be in your home or in a building and not everybody knows even what hospice is. So let's just unpack that word for everyone. Sure. Hospice is really a model of care. Um, it was the current hospice model was devised uh, in the uh, 60s, 1960s in London uh, by Dame Cecily Saunders, who is the patron saint of, of, of hospice care, who realized that as people were dying, that it didn't matter so much that whether they had heart disease or cancer or lung disease or whatever, the common big print point was that they were dying. And most people who are dying were suffering on multiple levels, whether that's physical symptoms, spiritual symptoms, psychological symptoms, emotional problems, financial issues. So she developed a pattern of care that addressed all those pieces. In the United States, the current hospice uh, uh, concept was started really well. Started in the '70s, but was enacted when when President Reagan signed the Medicare Hospice uh, Benefit in 1983. And basically, what hospice is is a mode of care for those who are at the end of their lives. In order to to obtain hospice care, you have to have two doctors certify that your prognosis um, uh, is most more likely than not to be less than six months and that you have to that you choose to focus on your symptoms and quality of life and living as best as possible rather than focusing on getting another cycle of chemotherapy or or uh, uh, pushing to get the heart transplant or or whatever so that hospice care is was designed mainly to be in-home care uh, with family or hired caregivers or neighbors and friends doing most of the work supported by 
physicians, nurses, home health aides, social workers, spiritual care coordinators, therapists, bereavement counselors, um, and that provide that really uh, provides most of really all of the medical care for these patients for the last weeks to months of their lives. And, you know, one of the things, uh, Dr. Space, that and this is funny, you think none of this is funny. Uh, also, there are some insurance policies that pay the death benefit while you're alive yes. if you're going into hospice, which is the same standard. It will somebody be gone within a certain period of time. Now, my clients in the old days when I was practicing law would always say, what if I don't die? Do I have to give the money back? Well, I just want to, I'm not kidding. Look, no, <laughs> you talk no. about not a lot. <laughs> you don't have to give the money back. So you should know that if you happen to survive hospice, Medicare doesn't come back and, and ask for the money. So it's, it's all not. right. Absolutely not. And we had yeah. one of my favorite patient uh, stories was the guy who bought the t-shirt that said, I flunked hospice. Uh, you <laughs> right, know, right. I got out. I'm out. Yeah, yeah, I'm right. out. Well, I'm living. I'm living. Yes. Well, I'll, we'll be back in a minute because the Dr. Spies has a wonderful book. You really can't miss it. It's something that there's probably nobody with as much in common uh, on this earth. Uh, we have so much in common about this one thing, and we all want to be dying with ease. Dr. Spies. Okay, we'll be right back. And he said a magic word, and that word was our nurses. Don't go anywhere. I want to pinpoint what he means by that and the importance of this very forgotten medical expert. Don't you go anywhere. Full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. Da -da -da -da. Da -da -da -da. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit. I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and I have been on a whirlwind of virtuality, a virtual conference. We even had a virtual gala where we had an improvisational comic call people from the virtual audience, and he would make up songs using their words. Now, this is a geroscience conference, and some of the words were mitochondrial pathways. So you give that one a shot, all right? I mean, it wasn't like pizza. Uh, so, and it was really a, no, we had a good time. And if you hear a giggle behind us, it's, it's the author of, he's, he laughs a lot, let me tell you, a Dying With Ease, a compassionate guide for making wiser end-of-life decisions, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Spies. Now, I, I want to tell everybody, and, and maybe Dr. Spies uh, uh, knows about this, October 1st that, that passed, this October, although I don't want to use the word past in his presence, but you know what I mean. The past October 1st was the International Day of Older Persons. And this year, the United Nations, on their 75th anniversary, 30th anniversary for the IDOP, named it the year of the nurse. And there really is no more unsung hero and heroine than the nurse. Uh, I was brought up by a nurse, an RN, that's why I know. And I want to throw this over to Dr. Spies right now. Uh, Dr. Spies, your book is in, in informative, and of course it's touching. What else would it be? But I was very touched by one particular thing that you wrote. You said people talk about 
pain management and they talk about spirituality. They talk about so many things. But the one thing that every dying person wants is to be clean. And that has a lot to do with the immediate caregiver around them, often the nurse. Can, can you bring out that the little bit of that relationship between nurse and patient uh, in the last part of life? It's it's so interesting, Adrian, because uh, as a hospice physician, I mean, I've got the doctor ego. I mean, this is it; just kind of goes with the territory. I try to suppress it, but it's there. But and yes, patients were always happy to see me, and and uh, I think we had good relationships. But I realized really pretty on in my career, both in oncology and as a hospice doc, that I'm not the important one. The nurse is the face of expertise. The nurse is the face of caring. And until the COVID pandemic, we just, there was a, you know, there's National Nurses Day and and this is going to show up how bad I am. I can't think right now what day it is. Um, But until we started seeing signs uh, thanking healthcare workers at the beginning of the uh, COVID pandemic, Nobody thought about this. Nobody recognized the 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 tenderness and expertise because the 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 nurse is the one who is there. She's there here. That she is there more often than the doctor. And it far. is mostly a she. Let me just put in that it is still today mostly a she, although there are male it, it nurses. Is, it is the the it is still mostly a she and um uh. It, in, in, the, in the hospice world, that's that's true. Also, um, the 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 other person who is almost always a she, although not totally, is the the nursing assistant. And this is the person who I think is, can have have the closest relationship with the patient. The nursing assistant who comes in and does the bath or show teaches the family how to do the personal care. And the I've had many nursing assistants tell me that it's during that time when the patient is so vulnerable, they literally have nothing whatsoever to hide, that they feel able to be open and express a little bit of the fear and a little bit of some of the other stuff that's going on. Um, patient, the patients and families tend to think, that the nurses and particularly the doctors are mainly interested in the medical stuff. But especially in the hospice world, that's not the big stuff. Yes, we want to do the medical stuff right. But the big stuff is who are you? Tell me about your goals. Tell me about your your history. Tell me about your life. Tell me about your hopes. That's the relationship that the nurse can have once trust is established. And um uh, so anyway, there, there, enough. You you are right, Adrian. Enough good things don't get said uh, to nurses. And one of the things that we do hear uh, is of critical importance when somebody is in that, in actually not even in terminal state, but in any helpless physical state, is to keep their dignity. Absolutely. And that means to be clean, to know where your dentures are, to have somebody who combs your hair. And that somebody gives you the book that you could still read. This idea of dignity is something that we haven't talked about much in this culture. But I will say that Dr. Spies's book's first chapter, I think it's the first chapter, Dr. Spies says, Dying in America. So, so I'm going to ask you this 
is it different dying in America than dying anywhere else from from your point of view? <laughs> well, um, I, I, I mean, the, the death part is not different. You're alive, then you're not. That's kind of this. That's that's universal. That's the way it goes. That's we the got way that. it goes. Um, I don't know that it's totally different, but I do think there is something uniquely American. And I think it is who, what is our national myth, that we are the pioneers, the conquerors of the continent. Um, uh, some would per se, perhaps say the rapers of the continent, but the conquerors of the continent. And the pioneer spirit, the can-do entrepreneur, I am who I am, a uh, rugged individual, John Wayne, shoot him up kind of person. That's who Americans think they are. And Americans think they're in control. But death is not controllable. Dying is not controllable. And I think Americans are uniquely put off by that, whether that's fear of it, whether it's just a foreign concept. Um, so that, you know, and when when the American healthcare system started, just the wonderful developments that happened over the past really 70 years, um, we again, as a nation, um, saw ourselves as curers, as fixers, not as dyers. Um, I, uh, uh, when I, when I um, joined one hospital, which will remain nameless, it was noted that the uh, chief of the medical staff uh, the year before when uh, asking whether they should start a being asked whether they should start a palliative care program said people do not die here well i don't know why the well, hearse, I'll go there yeah yeah well but <laughs> right. yes but i don't know why the funeral director showed up 742 times that year but you know uh, maybe the coffee was good but uh, that the um uh, I do think there's a strong death denial culture. We're getting better. I think the boomer generation is helping because the boomer generation want to take charge of their dying. And I think that's that's one thing that we are seeing, that there are more that hospice and palliative care programs are are growing. People want to know their options, uh, whether that's the issue of medical aid and dying or whether that's whether I want to get the next cycle of chemotherapy or whatever the issue is, I think Americans are starting to adopt taking charge of their dying um, as a new application of that American mindset. And I hope it, I hope it continues. Well, we're going to unpack another word when we come back, and that's palliative care. But I'm going to give you a little bit of a different thought on this from the issue of aging that we've learned. Uh, one of the reasons of, that Americans don't think about dying is it slows you down. And the key to we're looking for is being busy. Yeah, you can't be all that busy when you die. So we don't like it. And we we got a lot to do. And that is part of American culture. But what's happened recently is, particularly with the baby boomer now trickled down, is we've gotten a lot more Eastern culture in our life. Biophilia, forest bathing, walking with animals. All kinds of things of that nature are coming into being trendy. And when that happens, there's a certain level of spirituality that, that where you learn to slow down and become more reflective. So it may be that there, there is a tipping point here on our greater acceptance of the fact that we will die, but also that we will eventually slow down and that it can be considered a positive. But the negative, of course, of this can be 
pain and suffering. So we come back, we're going to talk about palliative care and where that discipline has gone. Don't you go anywhere. Full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. Da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy. And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg. And once again, we are back with Generation Bold, the Fountain of Truth. But this time, uh, we usually, uh, in our show, do a little bit of housekeeping. And today we have quite a bit. I'm going to be on a lot, a lot of webinars because it is so much easier. I'm on the air much more. Uh, we will be doing one in November. Uh, it's a virtual conference from the United Kingdom. They are the only country that has an official, an official policy called Health of a Nation to be healthier longer in the next five years for everyone. We're going to continue with the NGO on aging. We're going to be having conferences there, and that will show you what's going on worldwide in aging. And uh, on October 27th with the Gerontological Society of America, which will be a mini conference of our four-day conference that was just over. Now, if you want to get information on this, if you want to get free tickets and discounts and know what you can be listening to, as well as hints and tips on successful aging, it's always free. It's always free. It's a labor of love for me. I send you every single Monday a newsletter with all of this information and snippets of shows just like this podcast and our blogs. So how do you get that? It's very easy. I've changed it, made it easier for you. You go to my website, Adrian Berg, A-D-R-I-A-N-E-B-E-R-G.com. Simple as that. You can go on to uh, connect with Adrian. You'll see it right there. Give me your email address. That's all I need. You can give me some words, some interesting topics you'd like us to talk about. But it's adrianberg.com, and you will be able to hear the shows. We have almost two years of shows on there by now, and many, at least two and a half years of blogs. So adrianberg.com. Now, let's get back to our current uh, guest, and his name is Dr. Jeffrey Spies, and he's the author of a book that uh, is already on back order. So get in there now, Dying with Ease, a Compassionate Guide for making wiser end-of-life decisions. Always best to read something like this when you're not under any strain or a loved one is not under strain. But if you do have a loved one who has gotten a, a diagnosis and you want to know more about every aspect of making it easier for them, this is the book you're going to want to buy right now. Uh, so let's get back to one of the things that makes it easier, and that is palliative care. We use the word hospice. You unpack that for us, Dr. Spies. Now unpack this word. What is palliative care? Well, palliative care um, is 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 so uh, such a has had such a fascinating development because it's it's developed out of many areas. But in the United States, palliative care developed because hospice is superb but limited. I mentioned in the last segment that in order to get hospice care, which involves multiple disciplines that are all paid for, the nurse and the doctor and the chaplain and the social worker, uh, addressing your pain, symptoms, and quality of life, 
But in order to get that care, you have to be terminally ill. You have to have doctors declare that you will more than likely not be alive six months from now. Well, but this is good care. This is the way care ought to be, that if you need a social worker, the social worker gets covered, that if you need uh, chaplaincy services, the chaplain gets covered. If you need a pharmacist to review your medicines, that gets covered, and you get attention paid to your quality of life not and to your life, not to your disease. The typical, the conventional Western medical mindset is disease-oriented. I know this. I was an oncologist. I treated cancer. Um, and uh, it took me a while to realize that really I was dealing with people. But anyway, the point of palliative care is expert uh, pain and symptom management, expert uh, management of other causes of suffering, again, whether that's social or financial or spiritual. Um, the other big piece of palliative care is conversation. What are your goals? Determining goals of care. This is one of the biggest reasons people get palliative care consults in the hospital for hospitalized patients is a lot of doctors, probably most doctors in America, don't feel comfortable and maybe don't have time to sit down with the patient, sit down with the patient and the family to sort through their life history, to unpack their uh, values and their goals, and figure out with them or help them figure out how they want their care to proceed. Palliative care currently uh, is, has, a cup, has one tremendous, uh, it's a tremendous benefit. Most hospitals, more and more hospitals in the country have developed palliative care programs. Some have developed outpatient care programs. Some hospices have, hospice agencies have developed outpatient palliative care programs. Um, the problem is that there's not a consistent funding source. We haven't figured this out yet. So for most hospitals, the doc does some billings, the palliative care physician does billings, but the hospital basically has to cough up the money to pay the palliative care nurse and the social worker and the, the chaplain. Hospitals do this because they think it will help them by decreasing other cost things. There are fewer people go to the ICU for long stays, uh, getting aggressive, uh, futile, painful medical procedures at the end of their lives. They can decide ahead of time, not that they don't want to do that. I've, I'm kind of rambling, I realize, as I talk about palliative care, because it's basically just good medical care. It's the kind of care maybe that your family doc gave you when the family doc came to the, the, the house and made the house call in the 1930s because the family yes. doctors knew, knew you, knew the family, and knew what was important and could, could help you make decisions. Although in the 30s, they basically told you what to do. But it's the, it's, uh, right. Uh, right. Anyway, so that's well, kind here. of the palliative care piece. Yeah. 
Yeah, here, here's where um, some new trends are coming in that I think will make it clearer. There is a new definition. There's a redefinition of what medicine is. So one of the reasons that palliative care is difficult to describe is because it doesn't fit into any silo. Uh, it really brings together so many things that are not necessarily thought of as medicine, but they're administered in the medical arena. So that's one issue. Second issue is we are fighting that conference that I keep telling everybody about, and I invited you, and many of you were there. It's called Targeting Metabesity 2020. It was about not only longevity, not only methods of living longer, like metformin and whether or not aging should be a disease for the FDA to give us certain medicines that help us live longer, and not only living healthfully, which is what everybody wants, longer years, but one other thing that fits right into what Dr. Spies is saying. And that in the fancy language is the compression of morbidity. And what that really means is that you're suffering for less time in your life. You're not only living longer and you're not only living healthier and younger, but when you do pass away, the months or year or years before that event, the event of death, um, are not uh, are, are not uh, are healthier years are actually not as painful, and the compression of morbidity is very important because because palliative care, the ease of death, is not readily available uh, here in the U.S. It's very different when you don't have family around you, when you may not have the spirituality around you that they do in other cultures, and that's disappearing in other cultures as well. When it's costly. When, when you have to be billed by a hospital, the costs are extremely high for something that might cost very little if you had a family member or somebody in your home. So it, it's not an easy thing. But what we can say that you're hearing here, maybe for the first time, is that it is a trending item. And you will be hearing a lot more about that. And you have an opportunity to control some of that through your legal documents. So we are morphing in our next segment into the issue of legal documents, which has changed so much from the time that I was actually actively practicing elder law. Don't you go anywhere. We're going to show that connection, that confluence of medicine, health, better living, and law. I don't know where else you'll find that. Don't you go anywhere. Full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit, because I am happy, and I freely admit I'm inappropriate. For my age, da 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 da, da 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 da. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me not even a bit. Cause I am happy, and I freely admit I'm inappropriate for my age. And hello, hello, hello. This is Adrian Berg, and this is Generation Bold, the fountain of truth, the fountain of truth about aging. You can still go to uh, our website, adrianberg.com. Go to Connect Me. You'll see that if you go to adrianberg.com. Connect with Adrian, and you can ask for recordings uh, of our conference. It was a four-day conference. My goodness, it started at about, say, 9.30 in the morning, ended about 7.30 at night, for four days. The last day was an investment conference in what's trending in uh, metabesic companies. And that means companies that help you live longer.
and uh, also with much less pain at the end of your life, but more importantly, that really attacks the eight issues of aging, which you're hearing so much about with COVID, like inflammation. So if you go there and say, I'd like the recordings, we will be able to get you recordings eventually of all or part of that conference. So let's stay in touch. Now, right now, if you can believe it, it sounds like an oxymoron, but we're having a delightful conversation about dying. You can do that if you open your eyes to it and you try to plan for it. And that's the mantra of our author today, uh, Dr. Jeffrey Spies, who's actually written the book, Dying With Ease. You can get that on Barnes & Noble. Of course, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, a compassionate guide for making wiser end-of-life decisions. And you know who the compassion is coming from? From you. You are the one who's creating your own compassionate platform and guide for passing away. And that makes you compassion to your friends and your family. So let's talk, Dr. Spies, for, for a couple of things. First on compassion. One thing I don't want to um, leave this uh, show without mentioning, you did mention hospice and palliative care. We didn't mention volunteers. We will get into more in a minute. But uh, my very best friend, she herself is 77. She is a hospice volunteer. Wow. So just just give a shout out to those hospice volunteers as you did with the nurses. Hospice volunteers are, are phenomenal. And it's a challenging world for them, especially those that love the patient contact, because right now they can't do it. Um, right. The, yeah, because uh, but every hospice agency recruits volunteers. Actually, under the Medicare rules, you have to recruit volunteers. Um, but the the volunteers do everything from stuffing envelopes to um pulling weeds in the in the uh uh, uh reflection garden to uh sitting vigil with a family with uh a uh, whose whose uh, matriarch for example is is taking their last breaths to just be present um some do uh run errands or um uh, do volunteer legal work. So hospice volunteers are phenomenal. It's a great, 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 great service to a very needy uh, people. And uh, a great number of people do this after retirement as a way of yes. be, staying active and finding meaning. Actually, one of the best volunteers, I, uh, my favorite volunteers I encountered is the guy that came over and brought the, brought the dog every week. Uh, to the yes. inpatient unit, the, the pet therapy volunteer. So anyway, big shout out to the volunteers. Right. And my friend wrote a novel with one of the persons that she was uh, connected mm. to in hospice. And that was an amazing event in her life and in his life. And he did pass away, but it's quite quite a book. So you don't know what you'll get. And you can go to volunteermatch.com, volunteermatch.com, and you can match yourself up with a hospice that's near you. All right. Now, many, many years ago, Dr. Spies, in 1988, uh, 26 lawyers, I was one of them, started something called the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys. Nobody knew what an elder law was or an elder law attorney was, but what were we doing? Instead of writing and helping people write their wills, we were helping them write their end-of-life documents, and it was very primitive. When I go back and I think about it, the medicine was primitive, the issues were primitive. Wow, things have changed so much. So you do include a um, a real-life chapter uh, in your book. And what I'm interested in this, I know the language. I'm the lawyer that wrote the language. But I don't really know 
and this is a pity because most lawyers don't know, how it really plays out in real life. So if you as a doctor have somebody that's got one of these do not resuscitate orders or pull the plug or don't pull the plug, how much does that really listen to in the arena, in the hospital by the doctors? Um, is it is it something that they can ignore or do they follow to the letter? What's the scoop? Yeah, yes, I think it's variable from 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 institution to institution and doctor to doctor. I would like to be able to tell you that it's all that there these these documents are always observed, um, but they're not. Uh, I think they are most of the time. Um, the biggest reason they are not is that the people is that they're not known to exist, um, uh, or uh, they're lost, and that. Uh, uh, but the other issue that sometimes happens, and this is one thing I. Would strongly advise people when they make their documents, especially the the living will document is a useful document. It's a necessary document, but it only comes into play if you are terminally ill and unable to make your own decisions or in an irreversible coma. And that's those are very limited, limited options. The big the big group that are not included there are those suffering with dementing illnesses uh, who are no longer able to make their own medical decisions, but who are not terminally ill. The more useful document is the durable power of attorney for health care or your health care proxy or whatever it's called in your state, in which you name someone to speak for you when you, for medical or health care decisions when you are unable to speak for yourself. And this does play out in the healthcare arena. People ask. This is one thing admission clerks and ER doctors and, and floor nurses ask is who's the power of attorney? Who is the spokesperson? Um, because that's the, the, the critical thing. But the big point for those, for someone making, uh, choosing, uh, someone to be their healthcare proxy is make sure this is someone who knows that their job is to choose what you would want, not what they would want, to, not what seems right to them. So this sometimes people choose their health and make their health care proxy their attorney or um, a, a, a good friend rather than their daughter, uh, because they know that, well, I don't know. I don't know if she could pull the plug, but I know my attorney will do what I what I say. About the big, the big problem is when you the the say in an emergency room, the doctor has the uh, has the the document. The patient is needs a decision made, but the designated power of attorney is not there, and one of the other kids is there who has a very strong personality and is jumping up and down and threatening to sue if they don't do what she or he wants. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So and I'll tell you asked. why. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you why that's so important and why the overall premise of the book is so important. The premise of the book is you can plan for this. That's the yes. real premise of it. Yes. You can plan spiritually how you want your medicine to be. You can even envision how things will be for you and you can make some choices. Then you can tell people what they are. Yes. So one of the biggest issues with a durable power of attorney 
One was people can't find it. Absolutely true because it's a, it's no pun intended, a buried document. It's buried somewhere <laughs> in your drawer that nobody knows exists. But the other big problem is that you never spoke to your family member about it. Now, interestingly, the people who are durable attorneys, in fact, they also have to sign that document and they, they have to be, it's witnessed and they have to, know that um, it's, it exists. But we are so closed mouth about death. We are so hate so much to discuss it that we don't do that. And it's the denial factor. So one of these things that, that I think will come out of what you're doing, Dr. Spies, is, um, is is putting away the old issue of looking at death in six stages and grief in six stages and death and dying, Kubler-Ross, that's about all we know in America and go look at the practical aspects of it so that you can plan and take care of it for yourself and tell the people that need to know to execute your wishes. Right. So this has been an amazing ride. I thank you so much for being with us. And I know that book's going to be, uh, going to be the start of a tipping point here in the U.S. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. It's been a delight. And for everybody else, you know what I'm going to say? I know you have to stay in, but uh, soon I'll be able to say this for real. Get out there, kids, and make it happen. You may think that I'm full of it, but that doesn't bother me, not even a bit. Because I am happy, and I freely admit I'm inappropriate.